All right, my favorite superhero. There you have it. Superman, superhero of all superheroes. All right, that's good. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, so he, so Superman is this, you know, super ordinary guy, right? He's, he's into Lois Lane, right, who doesn't give him a second look. All of us guys, we've had our Lois Lane in our life. Don't you agree? Maybe you have one right now. Not sure. Hopefully not. But, um, but Clark Kent, right, everybody underestimates this guy. And then he goes into the phone booth, right, or the revolving door, and he transforms, and he comes out, this superhero, and he goes and he saves people, right? It's an amazing thing, like this. <laughs> there you have it. Don't you love this guy? He's so inspired, right? As a kid, I was so inspired, you know, this, this, um, this superhero, and yet he's hidden in plain sight. And when he becomes Superman, even though people didn't know who he was, his true disguise was actually Clark Kent. The essence of Clark Kent's identity was being a superhero. And, and so when I was a kid, you know, I have to ask myself, okay, why was I actually drawn to this Superman, right? I mean, yeah, he had the x-ray vision and the cape and, you know, the flying and you got the whole kryptonite thing and the Clark Kent transformation. You got all that. But ultimately why I was drawn to Superman is because I wanted to be like him. You know, I wanted to do the flying. I wanted the cape. I wanted, you know, I wanted to embody all of that. And so I grew up wanting to, 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 to have his powers, and, you know, even the, the feeling of he has a mission to save people, right, to save humanity even, right, the, the, the little kid whose ice cream falls off the cone and he saves it, you know, kind of thing. I mean, I wanted to do that even as a kid. And, and it tugged at my little kid heart. And here's the thing. I think we're all designed with a desire deep within us where we know we aren't everything we were meant to be. That, that deep down we know there's something more, there's someone more we want to be like. You know that person that everybody sees on the outside? You know it's not the real you. And so when that thought collides with the scriptures, we learn that God's desire for us is that we become more fully human. That we become more fully the person God originally designed us to be. And Jesus, who became human on our behalf, he was the ultimate human being. One amazing thing about Jesus is he was underestimated. He took on this form of an ordinary man. He went about doing ordinary things in a very humble, ordinary way, and he was overlooked. In a passage of scripture that I want to read together this morning, which is about Jesus, for him, it's a Superman moment. It's Clark Kent going into the phone booth and revealing his true identity. For a moment, a few people get to see his true essence, get to see what he's really capable of, and it shines light into understanding to, uh, to us about, about the journey of becoming. So we pick up in Mark chapter 9, verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, three of his disciples, took him with him, led him up the high mountain where they were all alone. There he was, transfigured before, him, before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. This is a unique passage. It's, it's actually quite a famous passage. There's nothing like it in the Bible or really throughout any literature. So verse 4, there, there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, 
who were talking with Jesus, which by the way, at that point in history, they were dead, in case you didn't know. But they appear. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. It says parenthetically, he did not know what to say. They were so frightened. So, hey, good tip for you. If you don't know what to say, you're in an awkward moment, just say this. Just, hey, let's throw up three shelters, right, and you'll be good to go. Verse 7, then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until Jesus, the Son of Man, had risen from the dead. Now, you read this passage, I don't know about you, and there's some things that are clear and simple to understand here, but I mean, there's a number of things in there that raise all kinds of questions, make you wonder what is going on and why is this significant? What is this teaching us? I happen to think quite a lot. I want to propose to you this morning that there are four important questions that frame this text, that that kind of guide us through the ins and outs of it, that can help us understand what is really happening, and why does this matter to us? Why does this matter to the journey of becoming that we're all on? The first question is this, what do we discover from this text about Jesus? I mean, in what was one of probably the most spectacular, almost certainly, one of the most spectacular events of their lives, these disciples, right? He takes these three disciples up the mountain and there's this shining glory moment, right? Where, where it's a light of glory that sort of happens before them. There's this undeniable voice of God and that glory, I know glory is kind of a, like a Bible word, like a big word. We're going to unlayer that a bit. But, but that glory revealed through Jesus is exuding from this guy that these disciples have been walking and talking with now at this point for years. And they're like, What's going on, right? But Hebrews 1.3 tells us Jesus was the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. There's no other way to see the glory of God more perfectly and profoundly than in Jesus. The Bible can't be any stronger about revealing Jesus' real identity. He is not like Moses or Elijah or any of the other prophets who are pointing to God, he is God, in whom Moses and Elijah and all the prophets are pointing toward. And so then brings us the second question, why did Jesus bring these particular disciples, these three, Peter, James, why did he bring them up the mountain? What's the point of that? And I think we have to step back from this and and, and realize the setting that's happening, the context, because after Jesus had a time of popularity in his life, the tide had began to turn against Jesus. He was a controversial figure. And key leaders in that time, they were trying to discredit him. People questioned him, many people. And including the disciples, they weren't totally sure what to think about Jesus. There were still lingering doubts, questions, especially considering at this point, Jesus had predicted his own death more than once. And looking back, of course, the disciples would have, you know, said, yeah, we realized all this. But in these moments leading up to the transfiguration, they had questions as all others did around them. And so amidst the rising opposition, the disciples' faith, it was going to be put to the test more than ever before. And they needed, and Jesus knew this, they needed to confirm who Jesus really was. And remember, these three and and, and the other disciples, these were the people that the movement of Christianity would be fueled upon and and whose backs would carry it through. These were important people, historically speaking, because they would share the gospel and propel that movement after Christ died. And remember, all the disciples except one were actually martyred 
for what they believed about who Jesus was and what he had done. The disciple John wrote this in, in his gospel. The word became flesh, like Jesus became human flesh and made his dwelling among us. He lived among humanity. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, I imagine when John wrote this, he was thinking about this moment, this transfiguration moment. And as the three disciples saw this transfiguration, they knew in that moment, they knew all the doubts, questions were dispelled because they knew he was the anointed one of God, the Messiah, who had come into the world to do the Father's will. The transfiguration was intended to make the identity of Jesus Christ utterly clear to these disciples and now to us. So this event, this text, this moment, right, that we read, this event reveals and solidifies who Jesus is as well as why he led these disciples up the mountain. But here's where it gets really good. Here's where the drama and the substance of this story really start to unfold. Because you see this Moses and Elijah, right? You ever wonder, like, what's the deal with them? What's the deal with their appearance? Like, you know, they're, they're, they're this alive, glorified bodies, you know, coming into this moment. Like, what's up with that? And in essence, both of these people were, were um, representing very important aspects of God and how history was now unfolding in the present and even pointing toward the future. So Moses, he represented the law. Remember, Moses was the guy that, that God gave the Ten Commandments to give to humanity. He, he's who God used to introduce you know, God's standards to humanity. Moses wrote the law, which anticipated the sacrificial atonement of the Messiah, Meaning that even as the law was being written and delivered to humanity, the reality of our need for a Savior was becoming profoundly evident. The law is essentially the irrevocable part of God's essence that requires a higher way of living, a level of obedience that is greater than what we're capable of in and of ourselves. And with this inevitable failure, of course, comes the need for atonement. So Moses is standing there next to Jesus. He's alive and revealed in his glorified body, representing the law and our need for atonement, which is an amending of our wrongs through the death and suffering of the Christ. And then you have Elijah, who represents the prophets. A prophet is a person basically chosen by God to speak for God, to guide people, challenge people, foretell what is to come. And Elijah was a prophet. He was given a message by God to give to the people to help them prepare for the coming of the Messiah. So in short, Jesus was joined by Moses and Elijah to indicate that he was about to fulfill the law and the prophecies. This extraordinary moment reveals the fulfillment of God's promises. And the thing about promises is that they stand out above all other statements. Right? I mean, if you put the word, I promise, next to anything, it makes it legit, right? Wouldn't you think? Right? So I tell my six-year-old son, Hudson, right, that I'm going to, on my day off, we're going to do something special. But that's not enough to secure it for him. So he, like, wants more verbal promises to secure it. So he'll say something like, Dad, on your day off, we're going to hang out and do something special? Yes. It's going to be very special? Yes. You know, is it going to be fun? Yes. You know, and, and on and on it goes. You know, can we make a deal on that, Dad? Yes. You know, and on and on it goes. I don't know if he's going to be a therapist because he has so many questions or a lawyer because he likes creating contracts. But, you know, either way, I guess, works. But promises give us anchors, in a world full of variations, unknowns, and inconsistencies. There are two profound promises that God made to humanity that I want to highlight. First, that God is perfect. In other words, he's holy, 
He's without sin. He's righteous. And second, God is real. Capital R, real. And God fulfilled these promises. To fulfill simply means to carry out or to bring to realization. Moses and Elijah were living symbols of God's promises to humanity. Jesus, being transfigured in their presence, was in and of itself a statement that God's promises are being carried out. Jesus was fulfilling the law. He was the promise carried out of God's perfection and irrevocable holiness. And Jesus was fulfilling the prophecies. He was the promise carried out of the reality of God's existence. These two promises that that God made to humanity were being brought into realization in this moment. That he is perfect. That he is real. And these two important promises both emerge from really the central word and the driving force of this entire text built around this word transfigured. It comes from the Greek word metamorpho, and, and we, of course, get our word metamorphosis from that. And, and, and maybe you learned about metamorphosis in science class. I don't know, the caterpillar changing over to the butterfly. You know, for me, I remember my first moment that I can remember is I learned it from Big Bird on Sesame Street, very intelligent being. I remember learning about, you know, this kind of thing. And, um, and, and here then, we have this complete change in the appearance or form of Jesus, which is what that word means. And there's this fascinating contrast, not a contradiction, but a contrast When we look at the theme of Philippians 2, there's another Greek word, kenosis. So the kenosis means the emptying of Jesus' divine attributes and glory to become a man. This is the reverse of what we see in the transfiguration. In one passage, Paul says Christ took on the form of a servant. Here, however, the servant takes on the form of deity, revealing his glory. The disciples had, G- had seen Jesus do many things, teaching and miracles and healings and all kinds of stuff, or changing water to wine, but they had never seen this. Th- this was a moment of glory like none other. Now, let's step back from this and think about the word glory. Right? Th- this is kind of a tough word to conceptualize in a lot, in a lot of ways. And, and to understand it better, we have to go back into the Old Testament. Because when the glory of God appeared in the Old Testament... You know what happened if anyone came into direct contact with it? They died, right? Now, I know that's a little creepy to us, you know. Uh, Maybe you're confused or perhaps even offended or insulted. I don't know, understandably. But I want you to think of it like this, okay? Just go with me for a second. If you're walking down the streets of San Francisco, and we can all agree, I think, that some crazy stuff happens in San Francisco, yes? Okay, so let's just say an enormous rhino falls from four stories down. On top of you. Just go with me, please. On top of you. Like, what's going to happen? Are you going to be offended? Insulted? (laughs) Maybe creeped out, perhaps, but dead, certainly, right? Because why? Because your being can't bear his being, correct? Or, Or think of it like this. If you looked at the sun without blinking for too long, you would go blind. Why? Because the luminosity of the sun, the being of the sun, is too much for your eyes to bear. Or years ago... I was a baseball player. I played all the way through college. I wasn't too bad, you know, did all right with it, worked really hard over the years, right? At some point in my life, I was kind of like, a, like scouts were looking at me, and I was kind of a prospect of sorts, you know, so I thought. And, um, and I remember the day, right, I wanted to go to the major leagues, right? But I remember the day I was like watching a, like a true prospect pitch, and he was throwing 99 miles an hour. 
I had this measly little 85-mile-an-hour fastball, right? I mean, I was left-handed and all, so it helped me. But this guy was just whip. I mean, you could just blink, and it was there to the catcher, right? And I remember having this moment. I was like, I'm not inspired, right? I'm like, this is like overwhelming. Like, I can't take this. Like, he's going to the major leagues. I am not. In this moment, I'm realizing this, you know, too much for my being to bear. So, so we understand this on a physical level, but then you take it to the spiritual level, and it's still true, but it, it's a little harder for us to get our minds around. But I mean, remember when Isaiah has this moment where he experiences the presence of God, and he goes, woe is me. I'm undone. I am ruined. Right? I'm a man of unclean lips. Or Job has this moment where, where he gets close to the glory of God. And Job says, I heard of you with ear, but now I see you with my eye and I despise myself. Essentially saying, I can't take it. It's too much for me. For anyone who gets even close to the glory of God, they begin to feel the moral weight. Because we are flawed, imperfect, we're sinful, we're finite. And our being can't bear the being of the infiniteness and glory of God. Yet... We were created originally. We were originally built to see and experience his glory. But we can't because of our sin. I came across some interesting information about elevators. Is anyone into elevators? I, I, I imagine no, but maybe there's a few. Um, elevators, you've got a, we've got a little hand. Okay, maybe, you know, a little bit. Well, well if you're scared of elevators, you're going to be a little more scared after I tell you this. But, but, but I think elevators are kind of fascinating, right, if you really understand it. Because, because we go into an elevator, and what do we do? The door opens, right? We're carrying our latte. We have our phone. You know, we push a button, right? The thing lights up, and then up we go to the 20th floor. Door opens. We walk out. Everything's good, right? But there's a lot more going on. Those buttons are not magic, right? There's stuff going on behind the scenes, What makes an elevator work is something called the counterweight. The counterweight. Now, you you get into an elevator car, and what's really happening is behind the scenes, there's this cable that runs up to these big wheels and has these steel plates attached to it. And then there's this computer. When you hit that button, you know, go to the 20th floor. This computer tells this machine, hey, drop the counterweight because we want to go up to the 20th floor. So you're in there. You push the button. All that's happening. And then up you go. Right? Because the counterweight comes down. It weighs more than you. In fact, the counterweight, they say, weighs you know, 60% or so more than the maximum occupancy weight. So it comes down and you go up. Now some of you are like, okay, elevator 101, I thought I came to church. Hang with me. Because here's the amazing thing. That's the gospel. Right? That's the gospel. The way you get from death to life is not by propelling yourself upward. It's by a counterweight. God dropped the counterweight that's heavier than our sin, than our guilt, than our shame. And when the weight of Jesus came down, it was sufficient enough to take us up. Because he weighs more, right? And you know what the word for glory is in the Old Testament? Weight. When we move into the New Testament, we read that Paul says, we've seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When the glory of God came down, his righteousness weighed more than our sinfulness. His holiness weighed more than our waywardness. And when the weight came down, we got lifted up. When Jesus walked the earth, Philippians 2 tells us, he lowered himself. It also says he emptied himself. He lost his invulnerability. He became killable. He set aside his glory. He hid it underneath his outer clothing of human flesh. His glory. 
He emptied himself of it so we could see it and receive it through him. He came down so we could go up. That's why we can just look and see Jesus. And all that brings us to the final question. How do we respond to all of this? I've been reading this book called 100 Days in the Secret Place, and there's a quote from it that really captures what our response ought to be. I love this quote. There's a view of your Lord in which reason, meditation, and thought do not play a large part. In the first kind of prayer, one thinks upon God. In the other, get this, here it is, in the other, one beholds him. The second is a purer practice. I mean, this is next level with God, where we see him not simply for what he can do for us or see him based on descriptions in the Bible or, or, or through some teaching like people like me or where we try to analyze him or understand him. I mean, all that is good. But this is about beholding. Beholding the moment. And these disciples were up the mountain. And, and don't, you, don't you love that Jesus was into mountains? I love that. I mean, there's something about mountains. I mean, it's why people climb Right? And put themselves all through this grueling pain and suffering. Because there's something about the mountain. People will expose themselves to freezing temperatures. They go through all kinds of danger and risk starvation and hypothermia and all that. I mean, one mountain climber said, I love climbing because it feels so good when I stop. I'm like, yeah, that's me, you know. <laughs> but all the suffering, it's worth, it's worth it to these climbers for that mountaintop moment where they see things and experience something within them that's so above and beyond and so special that nothing else compares. This is a form of beholding. As human beings, we have to learn to come up out of the world so we can behold. When we do, God reveals himself to us. His goodness, grace, love, truth, power, and on and on it goes. God has this history. When you look at the whole of the Bible, God has this history of taking people to the mountain for great revelations. you got Mount Sinai and the Sermon on the Mount. you got Mount Zion. And on this particular mountain of the transfiguration, on this particular day, away from everyone and everything, Jesus gives a small glimpse of glory. I imagine if that were you or me, there would only be one posture. To behold him. We wouldn't start analyzing it. We wouldn't think, oh, we got to comprehend all this. We wouldn't start dissecting it. We would gaze with an inner eye. We would look upon him with wonder that cannot be described in words. We would allow ourselves to be absorbed into it rather than try to dissect it from a distance. To me, what comes to mind is, is a baby being born. I mean, if you would have asked me before my two kids if I wanted to be there when a baby was born, uh-uh, no thanks. You know, probably you're the same. And I think in my mind, maybe I, I subtly thought, you know, of the old days where the father kind of sits in the waiting room and is reading his newspaper and he's relaxing, you know, he's smoking a cigar or something, you know, and like that's what I was going to be like, you know, and then out comes a baby and everything's glorious and beautiful for me, but it wasn't for her. But no, that's not really how it went down, nor should it. <laughs> And so reality came, my wife's pregnant, where she's about to have our, our son Hudson, and it was my moment to be with her. And I'm telling you, it was one of the most extraordinary moments I could, I could possibly imagine, hard to describe in words. And that moment when the doctor handed me my son, I mean, the tears just flowed, <laughs> furiously flowed, and my joy levels just exploded inside. I mean, it was a beautiful moment. I mean, this perfect, beautiful, fragile baby in my arms. I was, I was taken back by it, absorbed in the moment. 
I mean, I was like almost forced to behold it. I was absorbed in that moment, and it was a mountain moment. And I think all of us need mountain moments because they remind us that life can be magical, that there are things so separate and sacred and beautiful that life is worth living, that there is someone behind the chaos, suffering, and confusion. We all need moments to simply behold, where we just gaze with an inner eye, where we just take it in, we just absorb the wonder, the beauty, the goodness. But sadly, I think so many of us are too content with a life that lacks beholding. I know I'm guilty. So how do we go up the mountain with God and really see him and see his glory? I think the disciples give us a clue. And sometimes these moments come upon us, right? So these three disciples, in that moment, they didn't question what they saw. I mean, Peter didn't look at James and John and go, I don't think this is real. You know, let's check out here. I'm going down the mountain. No, they were swept up in the moment. They they couldn't absorb it all. But, I mean, they, they were there fully beholding it. And they were trusting what they were experiencing, They didn't try to pick it apart, which is sometimes what we're all guilty for. And God wants to reveal himself, perhaps has revealed himself to us in some way. He wants to reveal his wonder and beauty and goodness, how important he ought to be. And maybe you've had these moments, how important he ought to be in your life. And then we ignore it or we flee from it. We question it. We minimize it. We try to put it in some category that makes sense to us. It's that skeptical part of us that we won't loosen. And even when we're staring glory right in the eyes, we'll, we'll easily forget about it and we'll leave it behind. I mean, here's the truth. Maybe for some of you, you had an experience with God. You've tried to make sense of it. You've analyzed it. You've pushed it away for one reason or another. And what I want to say to you is that Jesus is trying to get your attention. That he is real and that he wants to reveal himself to you and that he wants you to behold him. And I, I want to give a challenge to all of us because this is easy to say and hard to do for me too. But the challenge is this, that you would take time to behold. And you might ask how. I mean, part of what Jesus did when, when he brought the disciples up the mountain was he cleared away the distractions and I think that's what we need to do. We need, we need to do what we need to do to, distri- to, to remove the distractions so that we can behold Jesus. And that may land in different places with different people. I mean, that might mean putting your device away for a set amount of time. That might mean going to, you know, on a hike or, or going to the ocean or, or bringing your Bible, a journal, and pen somewhere that you can be alone, that you remove the distractions. Or maybe it's every morning you get up early or in the night you go to bed later and, and you have these moments where you, where you intentionally create space where distractions are removed. You won't behold unless you remove distractions. And also, when those disciples, they experienced this transfiguration up the mountain, that Jesus wasn't a different Jesus. They just saw him with new eyes. When we come down off the mountain, life doesn't change really. But you start to see life with new eyes. You start to see him with new eyes because you've beheld And you start to see your every day with a whole new lens. I want to invite the band to come back up. And as they do, I want to remind us that, that, you know, that little kid in me that was hoping to be like Superman many years ago? He still exists today. 
But what I behold has changed. And this is why beholding is so important. Get this if you get nothing else. Because whatever you behold, you become. Whatever you behold, you become. And there are far too many things that we behold in life that don't have enough weight or weightiness to be something or someone that we want to give our lives to. We settle for so much less than what we were created for, which is why we must stay in touch with that longing inside that yearns to be like him. When you clear the distractions, when you intentionally carve out space to behold, you will start to see Jesus for who he really is, for what he's really done for you at the cross. And you will feel that longing to become more and more like him. And then you'll begin to see Jesus And he's the only one who can fulfill that deep longing you have. And you'll start to see that your essence is changing as you behold him. And going from one form to another. And when you experience Jesus like that, you won't be able to stop yourself from following him and trusting him and obeying him and worshiping him. You won't be able to stop yourself from making him your everything. Because you know what? You are, and you always will be, his everything. This moment that Jesus took the disciples up the mountain, you may not have a moment just like that. You may never get a moment just like that. But I assure you of one thing, that Jesus wants to go up the mountain with you. That he wants you to experience his glory. All of who he is. He wants you to know him and behold him and love him. And that is the invitation for every human being, for you and me alike, that we'd walk toward him, that we'd fix our eyes on him, and that we'd step back and just behold who he is and what he's done for us. Let's pray together. Jesus, we've been in a conversation about you And sometimes those conversations, God, are are hard to put words to about who you are, about what you've done for us. But I know there's stuff stirring in our souls in their unique ways this morning. And and for, for that person who's never set foot forward and said, yes, Jesus, I want to follow you, I pray they would do that today, in this moment even. And God, for others of us, I I know that we all long to see you to see your glory. And even if we don't know fully what all that means, probably none of us do fully, we want it, God. We feel it. May we become who you long for us to become. May as we behold, may we become more like you. Jesus, we praise you. We love you. Help us to behold you. In Christ's name.